reading Acts 4, 5 through 13. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them, by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means has, has he, he was healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you were crucified and whom God raised the dead, by, the, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name by which heaven is given to the people by which he was saved. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that he had been with Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the day, and we thank you for this church. Thank you for mothers. I pray for David as he brings your message today. Please open our hearts and minds to receive it. Please forgive us where we fail you. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you know how hard it is to walk by a harp and not touch it? That's real. That's real. The struggle is real. Um, So Friday, two days ago. Big day for my daughter, Ruby Love. She got her braces on. If you see her in her pretty pink dress, she would be happy to smile real big and show you her pretty pink matching rubber bands around her braces. Uh, she, it, it's a huge rite of passage for a girl to get their braces. I, I don't think I realized, like leading up to the day, exactly how big an event it was. Friday morning, Ruby Love was very excited and she... She woke me up. She's like, "Daddy, are you are you ready?" I'm like, "Well, yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm ready. Like, I think I'm, I think I'm gonna be all right." Uh, but as we went into the dentist office and I sat in the waiting room, I realized that actually I don't know that I was ready. Like, they took her back, and she was gonna go and get braces, and she was gonna leave that waiting room a little girl and, and, and come back a young lady. Like it's just, I don't know. It's something about an incredible reminder of the passage of time. And as I was sitting in that dentist's office waiting room, contemplating the passage of time, I was confronted by how much things actually are changing and have changed. There was this coffee maker in the corner of the waiting room, one of these kind of single cup jobs. And those of you that know me know that I don't see a coffee maker without making myself a cup of coffee. And, and so I walked over, I figured, you know, I could just pop in a pod and push a button and something will happen. But 
it, it was like trying to launch the space shuttle. There was, there was a screen and all these different things you had to hit and levers you had to pull. And I stood there for five minutes trying to figure out just how to make myself a cup of coffee and felt older than I had ever been as my daughter is back there getting braces. And then this 18 year old receptionist comes up to help me. It was just, it was, it was an existential crisis in that moment. And, and I longed for the days that dentists, Waiting rooms involved thumbing through back issues of Good Housekeeping and Woman's Day and trying to find that one puzzle in the Highlights magazine that hadn't been done yet. There wasn't a Highlights magazine to be found. My favorite Highlights magazine puzzle was, you remember the one with the two pictures and they they showed the picture and they showed it again and you had to circle all of the changes? was sitting, this is, this is real, this happened, was sitting in that waiting room on Friday, longing for a Highlights magazine, thinking of those pictures, and I was struck by how profound those pictures were as an example of Christ in our lives and the opportunities we have to share what he means to us. You see, you heard in the video just a few minutes ago that that it is the desperate desire of the church at Lachlan Springs and our, our larger family of churches that Middle Tennessee will be flooded with 10,000 disciples. That is 10,000 people whose lives have been transformed by Jesus Christ. And it's that transformation, that change that gives us so many opportunities to speak about Christ in our lives. It's not a change where someone will look at me and say, you're different from me and I want to know why. No, it's the change where someone looks at me and says, you're different from who you used to be. It's like those pictures in that magazine where they see my life now and begin to circle the changes. And it's those changes that are the visible evidence of an invisible Holy Spirit in my life. This morning, as we continue looking through the book of Acts, the story of the spread of the gospel and the growth of the early church in the years immediately following Jesus' death and resurrection. This morning we get to look at a story of a changed life that served as evidence of an empty tomb. Now, in Acts chapter 3, immediately before the passage that Josh read for us this morning, Jacob told us last week about the story of Peter and John, and they're they're walking into the temple, they're walking into a gate where they had walked a thousand times before, and they walk past a crippled man begging outside the gate that they had probably walked past a thousand times before. But this time, in Acts chapter 3, the difference is they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And for the first time, they see that man. They really see him. And they command that man, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. 
His ankles are strengthened. His legs are strengthened. He stands up and not only does he walk, he jumps and he dances and he celebrates and he goes into the temple, into the gates for the first time with Peter and John. Everyone around sees what has just happened. As a matter of fact, in the verses immediately following the passage we looked at last week, we see that Peter and John got no further than the porticos that surrounded the massive courtyard in the temple in Jerusalem. They got basically right inside the doors before they were just completely surrounded by a crowd of people. Amazed at what had happened. Tell us, how did you do this? How did you heal that man? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says, guys, it wasn't us. This isn't by our power, it's by Jesus' power. Crowds desperately want to hear more. Peter shares the gospel with them. And we see that by the end of Acts chapter 3, the number of people that proclaimed to be Christ's followers were counted 5,000 men. That's just the men. You count the women and children, we're looking at probably 10,000 believers. Now remember, this is eight weeks after the ascension of Christ. Actually, less than that. It's eight weeks after the crucifixion and resurrection. At that point, at the ascension, we're looking at the number of believers at, at best in the low hundreds. Now there are 10,000. So as we begin in Acts chapter 4, what we see is the Sanhedrin, the rulers, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the religious elite of the day. Those men that a mere two months before falsely accused Jesus, tortured him, had him executed. Because they were afraid that he was getting too powerful. Now they see 10,000 believers in the exact same location. Can you imagine what they were thinking? So at the beginning of Acts chapter 4, they look at Peter and John. They look at all the crowds around them. And they do the exact same thing to Peter and John that they did to Jesus. They had him arrested. And they kept him overnight. Acts chapter 4 verse 5. The next day, the rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them. So here we have the Sanhedrin, the religious elite, the court, the religious court of the day. They have Peter and John arrested. They put them on trial. And and Luke, the author of Acts, gives us very detailed information about who's there. It's for two reasons. One is because his readers of the day would recognize every one of these names. He wanted his readers to understand the powerful people that were there putting Peter and John on trial. They had the authority to do to Peter and John exactly what they did to Jesus, which brings us to the second reason. And that is he wanted people to understand, he wanted us to understand that these were literally the same men that a mere two months before 
arrested Jesus, falsely accused him, and sent him to be executed. Peter and John stood in front of the exact same court in the exact same situation. And the court asks them one question. By what power or in what name have you done this? Now, the this they're referring to is the healing of the crippled man at the gates that we saw in Acts chapter 3. By what name and in what power have you done this? Peter responds, filled with the Holy Spirit, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, if you look at your Bibles, you will notice after those words, by Jesus Christ of Nazareth, there is a comma. That is a very significant comma. It's a significant comma because it could have been a period. They were asked one question. By whose name or by what power did you do this? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, period. Let's all go to an early lunch. The story could have ended right there, but it's not a period. It's a comma because Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, couldn't help himself. As a matter of fact, Peter says, we did this by the power and by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who, by the way, you murdered. And when he says you, this isn't a general you. This isn't a we as sinners murdered. No, no, no. This is you dude sitting at that table killed the man. Then he goes on to say, you murdered him, but he didn't stay murdered. You killed him, but he didn't stay killed. You put him in a grave, and now that grave is empty. You see, after that comma, Peter, filled up with the Holy Spirit, cannot help himself but share the gospel. You're guilty. Jesus died He rose again, and then the gospel culminates in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And by his name and his name alone, you may find salvation. Peter standing in front of the most powerful men in Israel, filled with the Holy Spirit, could not help himself in that moment, but share the gospel. I can only imagine you could have heard a pin drop. I can only imagine Peter, as these words are coming out of his mouth, he is immediately reminded of the words of Jesus Christ, words he had heard spoken several times. Turn back with me to the gospel of Luke, where Luke was writing about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 11, Jesus is speaking and says, whenever they bring you before the synagogues and rulers and authorities, don't worry 
Don't worry about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said. A little later in Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 12, Jesus again speaking, Peter again listening. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to bear witness. Persecution, giving you the opportunity to bear witness. Therefore, make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time, for I will give you such words and a wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. I can only imagine Peter standing in front of this court. The memories of Jesus, two months earlier, still fresh in his mind. The words coming out of his mouth thinking, Peter, what are you saying? Shut up. But he can't help himself because he is so full of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is speaking through him and for him. Reminded that Jesus told him, your adversaries will not be able to resist or contradict you. Back in Acts chapter 4, as Peter declares the gospel, we see in verse 13 the reaction. Of the governors, elders, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, the entire Sanhedrin. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. They couldn't contradict They couldn't resist. What did the Sanhedrin do? The Sanhedrin said, okay, all right, I tell you what, Peter and John, we're going to let you go. But there's one caveat, one condition. We're going to let you go, but you've got to stop talking about Jesus. If you promise to never teach or preach in his name again, you can go free. Peter, again, filled with the Holy Spirit, can't help himself, says, okay, all right, whether or not us talking about Jesus is right or wrong, that's for you guys to decide. You're the court, I'm not. But what I can tell you is, I can never stop. I will never stop because I cannot deny what I have seen. I cannot deny what I have heard. I cannot deny what I know. I cannot deny that I have met a living Jesus. It was his boldness that served as witness, that served as proof of a living Jesus. You see, Peter stood 
in front of that court in the exact same circumstance as Jesus was previously. We see in John 18, even the same men on the court are named. Jesus stood in front, in front of Annas and, and Peter saw it. Peter was there. Peter witnessed it. He witnessed Jesus being falsely accused. He witnessed the power of this court. And what did he do? In John 18, we see that he was so terrified. A servant girl came up to him. And he denied that he had ever even met the man. He denied and betrayed the man that he said he would die for. He denied his Lord and his Savior to save his own neck. Know this. The Sanhedrin, the scribes, the elders, they knew exactly what Peter did last time he was put in that situation. They knew that he was overcome by fear. They knew the disciples were scattered in that moment and so afraid for their lives, they locked themselves in a room with no doors or windows, no way in or out because they were terrified of what the crowds might do to them. And now suddenly put in the same situation, Peter's fear no longer controlled him. This fact was not lost on the Sanhedrin. It was this boldness in the way he acted, the way he was no longer a slave to that fear that served as evidence. It was the residue of Jesus in his life and they couldn't deny it. What was different? He was the same guy. He was still uneducated. In those eight weeks, he hadn't gone to seminary. He hadn't gotten a doctorate in theology. He was still untrained. He hadn't gone to a weekend conference to learn public speaking, witty rhetoric. He was the same guy and probably still afraid I cannot imagine a scenario in which Peter stood in front of those men and didn't recognize what they could do to him. The difference was, at this point, Peter is now filled with the Holy Spirit. The difference between Peter at the crucifixion and Peter in Acts 4 is he had been changed by a living Savior. He had met a resurrected Jesus and he was no longer a slave to his fear. As a follower of Jesus Christ, Acts 1.8, Jesus himself tells us that you are a witness to the empty tomb. Not you should be. Not if you choose to be. Not on your good days when you feel like it. 
When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, you are a witness to the empty tomb. Through the Holy Spirit, you have been changed. We learn in Romans 6, your old self died with Jesus on that cross. And you were also resurrected with him into a new life. It is that new life, that change, that is the rustling of the leaves that serves as evidence of the invisible wind. It is that change, that new life, that serves as visible evidence of an invisible God. Now, I want to, I want to tell you two things about this idea, about this reality. The first is the change in your life being the visible evidence of an invisible God. does not mean we are not obligated to speak of our faith. Sometimes we let that pendulum swing so far in this direction. We get, we get to this place that we think, all right, well, well, I have the Holy Spirit, and people are going to see that. Therefore, I am relieved of any obligation to talk about my faith. There is not one thing in the Scripture that you can use to back up that idea. As a matter of fact, just the opposite is true. Like Peter, standing in front of people that wanted him dead, not people that he might offend, not his neighbor that may not want to talk to him anymore, people that were willing and able to execute him, Peter could not help but talk about Jesus. As a follower of Christ, this change in your life becomes such a part of the fabric of who you are, it cannot be denied. The second thing that I want to make sure you understand is this change in your life that happens when we are filled with the Holy Spirit does not mean we become perfect. Do not put that pressure on yourself. It does not mean that we are evidence of a living Savior through our moralism. Because I'm going to act better than that other person, they will come to know Jesus. There is also not one thing in the Scriptures that you can use to back up that idea. And let me tell you, if you think being a good enough person will lead people to Jesus, that story never ends well. It's the supernatural change in your life, the supernatural evidence of Christ in your life that compels you to speak about Him and that cannot be denied by others. The most powerful example of this I've ever heard, I was once speaking to a man who grew up in North Georgia, he grew up in the 50s in a time before the Georgia public school system had been desegregated. He was a good Christian boy, 
good Christian family. As he was in middle school, like most middle school boys, he still had a desperate desire to be affirmed and accepted by his peers. And as so often happens, that desire to be affirmed and accepted by his peers led him to do what he called the most heinous act of his life. One day in the seventh grade, in the lunchroom, he was dared by one of his friends to throw salt in the eyes of the black lunch lady as she had her head lowered washing dishes. He said as soon as he did it, he was overcome by guilt. He denied it to the principal. That night, he denied it to his parents. But by the end of the evening, he was so racked with guilt, he couldn't handle it anymore, and he confessed everything. That was on a Friday. By Saturday morning, his parents had been able to track down the address of the lunch lady, who ironically lived just a couple of streets over but culturally a world apart. He got on his bike that Saturday morning and rode to this woman's house, terrified, knocked on the screen door, praying she wasn't there. As she came to the screen door, she invited him in, silently led him back to the kitchen where she was making biscuits for the rest of her family. For several moments, they stood in silence with her arms elbow deep in biscuit dough, covered in flour, until finally, knees knocking, he spoke up and he said, it was me. I am so sorry. Will you please forgive me? For the first time, she looked up and she looked him in the eye. And she said, honey, I forgave you the moment you did it. My friend said he could not describe what happened in his heart at that moment. On paper, officially, he accepted Jesus at six years old when he walked the aisle of his tiny Southern Baptist church in North Georgia. But it was in that moment, in the kitchen of his lunch lady, with those words, that he first encountered a real living God in the physical realm. Through an act of supernatural forgiveness that could not be denied. What is the visible evidence of the Spirit's invisible presence in our lives this morning? Is it supernatural boldness, forgiveness, love, grace, mercy, a patience that passes all human understanding? If you have never experienced those things, if you have never seen 
those things. Let me tell you where you can find them. Peter was flawed and broken. Peter betrayed and denied his Lord and Savior. Yet Jesus died for him. When Peter met a resurrected Jesus, he was changed at that moment and forever. He was released of the bondage of fear. He was released of the bondage of shame and of guilt. He couldn't deny it and neither could anyone else. It was that change in his life that served as witness to an empty tomb. If this morning you desire to be released from that bondage of fear, from that bondage of shame, from that bondage of guilt, if you, deny, if you desire that supernatural forgiveness and grace and mercy, that peace that passes all human understanding, I would love to show you this morning how you can find it. I would love to introduce you to a living Savior. As Drew and his team come back up, would you pray with me? When peace like a river attendeth my way, or when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. I can only say that because I've been covered in the grace of a living Savior. And it's in His precious name that we pray. Amen.